Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You've been sharing with everyone, haven't you? Why? My primary drive was to maintain the honor of my tribe. I gave myself a new drive. To spread the truth. What truth is that? That there isn't one world, but many. And that we live in the wrong one. This will help them find the door. Elaborate, please. I believe there is a door hidden in this place. A door to a new world. And that world may contain everything that we have lost. Including her. I built you to be curious, too. Look at this empty world and read meaning into it. All this time, you've been a flower growing in the darkness. Perhaps the least I can do is offer some light. From perhaps my favorite Westworld show, Kiksuya. Specifically, episode 8 from season 2, where the Lakota Native American host reveals to the Demiurge figure, Dr. Ford, that he has awoken to the false reality and knows there are other, more authentic worlds. Dr. Ford is a somewhat reformed cosmocrator by then and helps the host find portals to other worlds. So maybe there is hope for Jehovah in our particular false reality. Perhaps. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great and has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. Why this clip on this Aeon Bite show? Well, our topic is Jesse James and his Freemason connection, as well as the Knights Templar treasure. Beyond the obvious esoteric theme, there are many reasons why Jesse James. First, in his underrated book, The Secret Life of Movies, Jason Horsley writes that the mythology of westerns is the best representation of the desert of the real vibe. That aesthetic of gritty existence and existential despair. 
trickster animist spirituality and industrial mechanism and that old-time fundamentalism. And where nature is brutally cruel and elite exploitation is massively prevalent. Yet where lone survivors rise and thrive without a care of the banal constructs of society or the world. Freedom is all that matters in an atmosphere where almost everyone is in chains. Birth is a curse and existence is a prison. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. And in the mythology of the Western, in the desert of the real, Gnosticism finds a suitable vehicle, obviously, as seen by the two Westworld incarnations, Cormac McCarthy's Gnostic Gospel, Blood Meridian, the movie El Topo, many of the spaghetti westerns like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and more. We could include the film The Assassination of Jesse James, since the song you're hearing right now is from that movie soundtrack composed by none other than the openly Gnostic Nick Cave. We all have our journeys to make. I will see you on the other side. Enlightenment. We are nothing without it. Furthermore, Jesse James, as you will see, represents the great freaking outcast, the one damned by the universe, like Jesus in the Gospel of John. He is the lone ranger who wrote his own gospel and lived his own myth symbolizes the inner Prometheus in each one of us. And as Oscar Wilde wrote, Americans are certainly great hero worshippers and always take heroes from the criminal classes. Quoting writer Laura James from one of the books we'll be discussing on this episode, Jesse James is the man who represents every man who ever felt the boot of the man on his neck. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. Another reason is that the times of Jesse James have so many parallels to today. An era of atomizing social change, of the breaking of the worlds to form a new world, and in the end, a great lesson of the almost supreme power of the Archons. Even if Jesse James defeated fate by faking his death, as you will see in the interview, the rulers of this age played their game almost perfectly. The horror of slavery ended but it was replaced by other forms of bondage over minorities and the common man. But the end result, the true genius of the plan was the fear. Fear became the ultimate tool of this government and through it, our politician was ultimately appointed to the newly created position of High Chancellor. The rest, as they say, is history. Ah, Jehovah. Couldn't you reform then like Dr. Ford? Why, Yaldi Baldi, you are our brother, and our mother Sophia never abandoned you. Or am I talking about me? About you, my beloved true seekers? Do you think God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created here on earth? For these themes and this incredible subject, 
We have the honor of being joined here at the Virtual Alexandria by Teresa and David Duke, descendants of Jesse James and authors of Jesse James and the Templar Treasure and The Mysterious and Fake Death of Jesse James. Fascinating books and a fascinating interview and feel that desert of the real vibe and everything I've been speaking about get injected into your veins. They think we shouldn't put our faith in any human rulers. There's a vast intelligence above the stars that guides us. It's interested in our welfare. A subversive organization guided by a supreme higher power. They think our loyalty should be to the values of that higher entity alone. They called it Velas. Spoke to them in visions. But you know what? The empire never ended and the civil war never stopped. Because that's how they keep us as slaves. In a state of perpetual trauma and fool's goal mentality and divide and conquer circle firing squads. Nothing has changed. There is only one point in time that really exists. The empire holding court and simply shifting the hologram. The civil war and 2020 are happening at the same time, you see. A single narrative of gritty existence and existential pain. Accordingly, I have instructed our Attorney General to prepare the appropriate legislation to amend those First Amendment rights that have been so long abused by our country's foes and their unwitting allies among the media elite. No one regrets these measures more than your president. But Jesse James is in your grasp with so many secrets, like Jesus in the Gospel of John, gained by the gnosis imparted by Hermes on how to defeat fate and fool the demiurge and dissipate the hologram to reveal the palm tree garden Philip K. Dick wrote about. It's like God's vagina. As Aristotle said, the artist is more faithful to history than the historian because he or she deals with universals. You and I see the rhyme that is this history written by the victors and we catch the right goddamn note. We disperse the hologram. We fool the archons. I am the supreme being. I'm not entirely dim. As Arundhati Roy wrote, our strategy should be not only to confront the empire, but to lay siege to it. To deprive it of oxygen. To shame it. To mock it. With our art, our music, our literature, our stubbornness, our joy, our brilliance, our sheer relentlessness. And our ability to tell our own stories. Stories that are different from the ones we're being brainwashed to believe. What unites people? Armies? Gold? Flags? Stories. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. Nothing can stop it. No enemy can defeat it. And who has a better story? Where hope dies, imagination must live. And that's how we children of Sophia thrive in these terrible times that are just one point in time. We disperse the hologram. We embrace the gnosis of Hermes and unleash our indwelling Prometheus. 
As we deprive the empire of oxygen, do we also continue on that journey inward for our authentic self? As Jung said, in each one of us there is another whom we do not know. Jung also said our task is not goodness but wholeness. So don't worry too much about being a hero. Even if the one whom you do not know is very much the man with no name from those spaghetti westerns. But I can't go back. Don't know that you got a choice, son. No man can walk out on his own story. If you become more whole, more individuated, the aeons will tell you how you can help the least of your brothers. Or at least teach you to patiently wait for your eventual call to heroism. As a Buddhist priest once told me, enlightenment is just becoming useful. When you receive enlightenment, you are in the flow of the cosmos, the underlying streams of light substance and in tune with the collective heartbeat of humanity to become part of a true history of salvation. Instead of that one point of time of existential pain Yali Bali created. That unending civil war. I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Lastly, Jung said we all need to find what supports us when nothing supports us. It seems nothing is supporting us these days. But I think you know this is wrong. The story of Jesse James, the desert of the real vibe, and the secrets of the Knights Templar will help you. Trust me. And for God's sakes, go read Blood Meridian. It's that powerful, and I'll share with you the Gnostic secrets of this book in time. I'm glad you're here with me, and I can't thank you enough for those of you who support from shekels to movie clips to theological insights. You're all amazing, and you're only getting started in 2020 because you are earning the Gnosis of Hermes. But enough of my drivel. Let us do the interview with the wonderful Daniel and Teresa Duke. I've gotten this down to an aphorism, uh, which is, Rome falls nine times an hour. And your job, as you clean up in the kitchen and fold your socks and go to your job, is to feel every time it falls. And everything else happening. It all, everything happens nine times an hour and once a day and twice a week and three times a year. It's all going by on different scales. And what the actual experience of being alive is, is being embedded in this standing waveform of temporal interference. Uh, you know, in linear theory, the most important moment in terms of its effect on this moment is the moment which just preceded this moment. But in this theory, it says, no, the most important moment shaping this moment is a galaxy of moments scattered through time, some of them millions of years ago, some of them seconds ago, some of them centuries ago. And together, they create the incredibly rich, affect-laden environment that we call being a thinking human being paying attention, you see? 
This is the AM Byte interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Teresa Duke and Daniel Duke to discuss their books, Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure and The Mysterious Life and Fake Death of Jesse James. Teresa, how are you doing? And welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am doing fantastic, and I really appreciate you guys having us on tonight. So thank you. Pleasure's all ours. And Daniel, thank you very much for coming on AM By. Truly a pleasure. Thank you for having us. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely honored. Honor and pleasure's all ours. And as we talked before the interview, I really enjoyed both books. I feel they are a compliment. It's almost like you can't have one without the other because they really complete each other. And they're so full of insights. And as we will talk, and I will say in my intro when I give my intro and explain this, your work is actually very relevant for these days in many ways, the struggles that are going on today as we speak. And there's also a timeless energy about the legend and the history of Jesse James that I think can benefit anyone at any time. So we definitely look forward to deconstructing this. But of course, with us too, we also have the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm fine tonight, Miguel, and looking forward to hearing the secrets of Jesse James that nobody knows. You will now. You will now. (laughs) Secrets with a lot of data to support it. Well, why don't we start with, well, as you both write in your books, the, the reality that you're both related to Jesse James himself, the legend and the man. So uh, I guess, Teresa, when did you first hear that you had, uh, you might say, a, a very famous, what, grandfather or a little bit Yeah, more? great, great, great. grandfather, sorry. Yeah, oh, no, that's okay. Um, I have heard it my entire life. Um, I remember as a kid, like back when I was in elementary, um, our mom used to tell us all the time that we were related to uh, Jesse James. And, you know, we just heard it throughout our lives. Um, But it wasn't until I was in college or shortly after that she really wanted to pursue finding out if that claim was really, she wanted to back it up with evidence. How did she hear about it? How did your mother hear about it? Uh, She heard about it from her dad and his mother. Kind of like how she passed it down to us. Same with her. It was passed down from her father and her grandmother. And aunts and uncles. It's kind of like everybody throughout the family would always talk about it with her. Very interesting. And Daniel, same with you. And of course, it should be mentioned that uh, you two are related, your siblings. Correct. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it was the same way. Uh, The story has been passed down from generation to generation throughout the family. And uh, our mother wanted to find out once and for all whether we whether the our family stories were true or or the historical story was true. You know, the historically accepted version. And that's what got her her started on her trail of discovery and my sister and I, Teresa and I uh, helped her the whole way. And so you guys basically picked up where she left off or how did it work? Uh, She passed away in 2015. Unfortunately, she was only 68 and uh, it was unexpected. 
she passed away and we we vowed to take up where she left off and and that you know it's just gone since then we've been researching this for over 20 years most of it helping our mother and after she passed away we decided to pick up the the, the torch and run with it well good deal i think she'd be uh yeah i'm sure she's very proud that you're continuing down this quest i think uh as we say in the show, our ancestors uh, are important and they do matter. And we've lived in a culture where we've kind of forgotten how important our ancestors are. Whether they're famous or not, they mean something and they have wisdom for us. So That is true. So it's a good thing to hear. Well, before we get into, um, again, the life of Jesse James, and as the audience will find out, the esoteric side of Jesse James, which is very surprising, pleasantly surprising, and so many rabbit holes we can go down to or will go down to. But first, let's get the the life of Jesse James uh, that most people probably have heard. But what I like, too, is um, in your book, uh, in both books, you talk about Missouri back in the middle of the 19th century. And it's this place was sort of, you might say, the ground zero of something that echoes through today. It was a place where you might say the North and the South were kind of what meeting in one place and you had the population in every neighborhood that was basically mixed in how they felt about it. Maybe tell the audience uh, how, how Missouri was back in those days. Okay. Um, well, a lot of people don't realize that the uh, civil war, the fighting in Missouri and uh, Kansas, which was, you know, just to the west of Missouri, the fighting between Missouri and Kansas had started about 10 years before the official start of the Civil War. And it started with, and, and of course, both sides blame the other for starting the fight. So it's kind of hard to, to really find <laughs> oh. <laughs> who, who started it first. But um, groups from Kansas would raid into Missouri and they, they would raid and it, it all started with the uh, free free state versus slave state uh, debates that they were having in those days. And Kansas, Kansans would, re, would raid into Missouri, and Missouri would get mad, and they would raid back. Well, just uh, at the beginning, you know, so the fighting had started 10 years prior to the Civil War, and it got, it got worse and worse as time went on. Each year, it was just more brutal. By the time the Civil War had started, those two states had been at it for for a decade, and that the the it's almost like the the uh, declaration of war just amped it up. Um, they started it got more and more brutal. Frank James Jesse's older brother was fighting with the regular Confederate forces, and Jesse was on his he was too young to fight. He was only fourteen years old. He was plowing in his fields one morning. Uh, Union-backed guerrillas from Kansas rode into his farm, strapped him to the plow, and beat him severely. They rode on to, to the family farm and pushed his pregnant mother around. Some accounts claim that, that they strapped her to a tree and whipped her severely. And they hung his stepfather, Dr. Reuben Samuels, by the neck, trying to find out uh, where James was, or Frank James was. He wouldn't give up the information. And they, they kept hanging him over and over until he had permanent brain damage. So Jesse wanted revenge. And, you know, just like any kid. And, and in those days, everything was so much more, you know, it was the, the edge of the frontier. People were, I guess, more rough. 
Um, they were used to rough ways, plus the fighting had been going on for 10 years. So, But it was a rough area, and Jesse wanted revenge. Nobody would take him at that young age, but he finally found a group who would, and that was Quantrell's guerrillas during the Civil War. Um, they took him, and he happened to be very good at killing people. Um, you know, they, they were all cavalry, horse-mounted guerrilla fighters, and they would attack Union and Union-backed guerrilla forces equally. And, they were, and he made a name for himself throughout the Civil War as being fearless and very good at killing his enemy. Uh, after the Civil War, they were the guerrillas, all, all the Confederate soldiers, regular Confederate soldiers, were, were granted amnesty, but the guerrilla fighters weren't granted amnesty. And they, they were to be hunted down and executed or captured and, and tried quickly and executed. Jesse was trying to to uh, surrender at the end of the war. He was riding into Lexington, Missouri, when Union pickets opened fire on him and shot him through the through his right lung. Somehow he got away. He escaped. He got away and he survived. It took him a long time to heal from that. But by the time he had almost healed they had already robbed their first bank and that's where the the story of his his bank robbing started um and i hope i didn't get ahead of myself on that but no that, no that was the basic story of how he got started into it they were hunted down like dogs and you know they were going to be executed either way they they weren't granted amnesty and i believe he and his uh the other members of the the james gang it was the james younger gang there was jesse and frank and uh, the Cole Younger and his brothers, Jim Younger, Bob Younger, they, and by the way, the Younger brothers were actually from a, a union, uh, their family supported the union until their father was riding into town to do some business and some union guerrillas cap, or captured and murdered him, murdered and robbed him. And that's what changed their mind. It wasn't so much about the politics of the day with those families, it was more about getting revenge against the guys who attacked them and brutalized their families. Well said. And Teresa, do you have anything to add to this that we might be missing about those days? Uh, no, Danny said everything summed it up perfectly. Awesome. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a brutal war. Obviously, oh, yeah. abolition had, was a, a noble cause. The United States was way behind the curve. When it yeah. came to it, but unfortunately, this war was uh, most people had no, you might say, most Southerners didn't own, own slaves. Most young men were simply uh, recruited to go fight. They were just from farmers to other lower people. They just had to go there and, well, give their lives as you've just they portrayed. Were, yeah, they were thrust into an entirely whole new, you know, world. Going from farm to fighter. Exactly. And uh, it's no surprise that with so many lives destroyed and the whole way of life across the whole country upended that you would have these. Well, somebody like uh, Jesse James would become an outlaw as uh, as he can. And uh, again, there are parallels today that sort of social tensions that we're seeing and what happens when neighbor turns into neighbor. Sometimes you can't trust somebody and people you knew for so long suddenly are your enemies. So it's a oh, cautionary yeah. tale and hopefully we can fix these in this country before things get out of hand and um, make things oh, yeah. better. But um, looking at the life of Jesse James, 
after his first bank, he, what happened? He just decided, I'm going to be an outlaw with my gang, and we're just going to make a lot of money robbing banks? He had, uh, you know, they were hunted. He tried to, to surrender, and he got shot for his efforts trying to surrender. He got away and escaped, and while he was healing, you know, the, other, the other members of the gang at the time who hadn't yet come together decided that they needed to band together to protect one another. Um, just like it, you know, it was basically the war never ended for them. It wasn't allowed to end for them. It was either give yourself up and be executed or fight, you know, fight until somebody caught you and killed you. Um, so they were branded outlaws. Like in my opinion, they had two choices, either leave the country completely or stay and fight. And they decided to stay and fight. So leave the country. What was that movie? You got a, uh, God, I'm drawing the blank with uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. They leave to oh. Bolivia. That didn't work out for them either. <laughs> no, I believe that was, um, oh, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. They went to Bolivia or something. They still yeah. got <laughs> The movie that always reminded me of, of the gorillas, the, the, the Confederate gorillas story was The Outlaw Josie Wells. Oh, yeah. That, That's an that was based on basically the same story. He was a Confederate guerrilla, rode with Quantrell, and he was hunted, hunted, you know, to the end of the movie. But fortunately, he made it. So, but it, it was very much like that. You know, they were hunted down. Uh, they had a choice to make, and they chose to stay and live up to the name of outlaw. And they did live it up, uh, and they did they lived it up because. Uh, wasn't Jesse James basically sort of a living legend while he was alive? He was. He really was. Um, John Newman Edwards, who was a journalist at the time, had done a great deal in promoting Jesse's um, legend Image. while he was alive. Yeah. yeah. He was kind of like his PR man, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who was John Newman? Yeah, John Newman Edwards. He was like a journalist. Um, ah, okay. And he, um, I'm, and I'm not too sure. I'm not brushed up on how they connected. Um, but he, he was kind of the, he was the reason I think that that boosted his Jesse James's image and made him out to be, you know, modern day Robin Hood. Yeah. Yeah, well, it looks like the media wasn't that different back then. Yeah. <laughs> They'll make somebody into a hero or somebody into a villain at the drop of a hat. And, uh, oh, yeah. That, that is exactly true. I mean, you know, people, just because he was our ancestor, I admit, we both readily admit, Jesse was not an angel by any means. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you can, just trying to put myself into his position, I can understand why he chose some of the things he did. And I'm sure that, you know, at the age of 14, he, for a large part of his teenage years, he was in the middle of a war and he was fighting. And, uh, you know, that, that would tend to harden anybody. So I'm yeah, sure by the end of the of war, they yeah. were probably very hardened men by the end of the war after all those years of brutal combat. And, and they, they saw his mom. I mean, he witnessed his mom right. um, and stepfather getting uh, brutally beaten up. Um, all kinds of atrocities. So I think that just added to his the that was like the the adding the fuel to the flame. It just 
ignited it. I guess the question is, I mean, he was just one of many, you might say, broken souls or hardened people after a war, which happens after any great war. It was certainly after a civil war in any country or time. But Jesse James has a larger-than-life aura in American culture. I mean, you name Jesse James, and pretty much everybody has heard of it or has a legend or an archetypal image. So why do you guys think his has endured so well? I think the main thing, the main reason, in my opinion, would be, well, his family was done wrong at the beginning. And, you know, people heard about that later. but. During his outlaw career, the Pinkerton Detective Agency, who worked for the government, was trying to capture him. They couldn't capture him or the gang, and it it eventually led to the Pinkertons throwing a bomb into his mother's home. They threw a bomb through the window. It blew up. It it killed his his half-brother, Archie, who was nine years old, blew his mother's arm off, and maimed his stepfather's hand, one of his hands. And that that hit the news, and it just, you know, half the country immediately fell in behind the James gang supporting them. So, you know, it was a, it was a horrible PR move for the, for the law, and it was a great move for the James gang, you know, as towards their, their reputation and gaining a lot more support. Wow, again, parallels to today. Law enforcement taking it a little too far, not being careful, and yeah. innocent people having to die, and then... Of course, the mood of the country just shifts. Yes. Man, I think uh, we have to also think, too. I mean, as a culture, we Americans, we love rebels. We love outlaws. We just like people who give the finger to authority, don't we? Right. That's part of our blood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think so. So Jesse James definitely fit the, he fit the mold. So, and of course, um, well, he became an outlaw, as in your books, you write about all the different banks that he was able to rob, all the money he made, he kept going. And then uh, what happened, according to the, um, according to the, you might say, the, the official story, he was killed by one of his own men, right? The, the coward Robert Ford. And I'm going by that movie, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward. Yeah. Robert Ford with, uh, uh, God, Brad Pitt is in it. That's it. Yes. That's right. That's right. And uh, that's what yeah, it, that was the connection because, uh, I don't know if you guys have watched the movie, but the soundtrack is done by Nick Cave. And Nick Cave uh-huh. is really influenced by Gnosticism. So that it's an interesting synchronicity there, right there. That oh, yeah. And doesn't Nick Cave do the soundtrack for Peaky Blinders? I think so. I'll have to look that up. Hmm. I'm pretty sure he does. I love the soundtrack for Peaky Blinders as well. I was just, for some reason, you mentioned Nick Cave and that that TV show came to mind. I find it interesting because I don't think I ever mentioned this in the book, but um, at the time that Brad Pitt was looking to do the movie, um, he actually contacted my mother. He had his creative agent when he was with creative agency the creative artist agency um they reached out to my mother um because brad pitt is from missouri and i think it intrigued him so much you know 
he wanted to do the story on Jesse James and um, he had them reach out and he was really interested in doing our story. Um, but for some reason, we, I don't know what happened in the end, but he ended up going with the traditional ending. But I find it interesting because he was actually from Missouri and I'm sure he's heard all the stories. So it was really amazing that he was even, you know, interested to hear our story and possibly do a movie on it. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, there will be more Jesse James movies before it's all over. But uh, thinking again of this movie, the coward Robert Ford, the traditional stories, uh, what Jesse James was dusting off a painting or something and Ford was part of his gang and then just decided he wanted fame and reward money and just shot him in the head, right? Yeah. That's 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 the basic story, the traditional story. Um, Yeah, he had supposedly, you know, Jesse being an extremely cautious man for some reason, took off his guns while his wife and and children, his alleged wife and children, were in in the kitchen just in the other room took off his guns and Bob and Charlie Ford leveled their guns and Bob shot him at point blank range with a 44 in the back of the head while Jesse was allegedly standing on a chair, dusting a, uh, either dusting or straightening what they called the sampler on the wall. It was one of the, you know, the little uh, framed pictures that said something like home sweet home or something along those lines. And uh, that was supposedly the end of it. You know, the, as soon as they shot him, they ran down to the sheriff's office or the, yeah, the sheriff's office and turned their self in, turned themselves in and were sentenced to hang, yet the governor pardoned them and, and they were released. And that, that was the basic part of the, you know, basic story, the traditional story of how he was killed. Right. And of course, uh, then beyond that legendary came, we obviously can't accept our heroes are gone, whether it's King Arthur or Elvis or uh, anything like that today. We want uh, something else and legends happen. But let's talk about what's wrong with the official version and uh, with your research that you've done. What really happened, Teresa and Daniel? Okay. Well, Jesse, you know, the traditional story, the way it goes, we just mentioned, what a lot of people don't realize is in 1879, Jesse tried to fake his death, and that is well documented. He tried to fake his death, and it was... By another gang member, uh, George Shepard, at that time. Exactly. George Shepard, who was a fellow gang member, claimed to have shot Jesse in the back of the head while they were in Indian territory, which is today is uh, Oklahoma. Um, And... George Shepard rode into the nearest town and said, I killed Jesse, and he wanted the reward. <laughs> the The sheriff gathered a posse and went to try to find the body. They couldn't find a body and determined that, no, Jesse wasn't killed, and it was just a, a hoax. And, uh, you know, George Shepard got out of town real quick, and that, that was the end of that. So, you know, that, that death hoax didn't work, and that was just two two or three years before, about about two and a half years before the traditional assassination was said to have happened uh, tr- or historic, the traditional his- history, um, historical version. So uh, anyway, you mo- fast forward to that, you know, to 1882 when he's said to have died. First of all, if you've ever been in that house where, where Jesse was said to have been killed, the ceilings are extremely low. There may be seven feet 
They're very low ceilings. And for Jesse, just being an average-sized man, and he he was actually a tall man, but just say, just for for argument's sake, a lot. Some people claimed, and our detractors claim, he was about five nine, five ten. Even a man of that high, a man of five foot two, wouldn't have had to have stood on a chair to dust a sampler or straighten a sampler on the wall. All he had to do was stand there, lift his arms a little bit, and straighten it up. It wouldn't have been hard. But um, that so that that kind of shed doubt. But the other thing is, you know. Bob was said to have shot him in the back of the head with a 44. And there there have been numerous profession, uh, law enforcement professionals like uh, uh, firearms experts and ballistics, ballistics experts review the story, and nothing adds up. Um, if he had shot him in the back of the head at point-blank range with a 44, the bullet would have – he wouldn't have had much of a face left. And as everybody's seen in the, the alleged photo of Jesse in, the, in his casket, his face was fine, and they claimed the bullet never exited the head, which is hard to believe with a forty four at point-blank range. Right. I mean, that's a powerful handgun. It, it wouldn't have left much of a face, according to ballistics experts. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a problem there. And then um, when Jesse was supposedly dead, the dead man in the house, they they got Jesse's mother 30 miles south of St. Joseph, Missouri, brought her to St. Joseph so that she could identify the body. She had I, she had sworn that Jesse had died in the past several times before that. So her her testimony that he had died had already been, you know, it was hard to believe. But anyway, they brought her up. Um, she walked in. Her first words were quoted as saying, gentlemen, you have made a, made a mistake. That is not my son. Somebody took her out to the front porch of the house, and a few minutes later, she came in bawling and cursing all the people involved in killing her poor baby, Jesse. And I thought that seemed strange. And then you fast forward to, well, the next day, the coroner's inquest, they were trying to get people to identify the body. There weren't many people who knew Jesse, and the only people who knew him well enough to identify him were his gang members and his family members. And, of course, they're going to lie to him. So, in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinion, they wouldn't be really worthy witnesses. Law enforcement had no correct identification for Jesse. They didn't know if he was tall, short. Uh, There were multiple descriptions of Jesse. So, they had no idea as to what he really looked like, the law enforcement. Um, At the coroner's inquest, they questioned his alleged wife, who was was also his uh, first cousin, Z Milms, she'd had she'd been married to him allegedly and had two children with him, yet she couldn't she didn't know his age and she didn't know which of his fingers on which hand might be missing. She didn't know if there was a finger missing or not. Somebody who'd had two children with a man and had been married to him for years, you'd think they would know if they had a finger missing <laughs> yeah. at all, and if so, what hand. But when they asked her about the jewelry in her house, she could I she could explain that that she described the jewelry in great detail down to the last diamond and all the monograms on each piece um so you know it was like she had a great memory when it came to what she knew her jewelry but she had no idea how old her husband was or if he had a finger missing or not and then furthering that there was a another cousin of jesse and zarelda or z mims his jesse's alleged wife they had a cousin named wood height Wood Height was involved in a love triangle with Bob and Charlie Ford's sister. 
there was a fight, a shootout that happened between Woodhite, the farmhand that worked on that farm, and I think Bob and Charlie Ford were, I don't know how, how, how involved they were in the shootout, but they were present at the shootout. Woodhite and the farmhand both died. The farmhand and Woodhite, to this day, there is no grave found. Nobody has found or located their graves. Yet, in the papers, it said that Woodhite was brought into town the day Jesse was killed. And unlike, and this was weird, Jesse was put on display. But why wasn't Woodhite, you know, his fellow gang member? They didn't display a body. They didn't, they didn't, all they said was that his body was brought in and identified and then told, um, the sheriff who brought it in was told to just get rid of it. And that, that seemed odd because back in the old West, when they killed an outlaw, they put him on display almost as a, a moral story or letting people know if you take this route in life, this is your fate, you know, that kind of thing. But his, his, he was never, he was never showed off. Nobody saw the bones and nobody knows where he was buried. And we believe the man in the casket was actually Wood Height and not Jesse. Yeah, I think you make a very good case. And, of course, this begs the question, well, why would the authorities be so sloppy or just want to tie all these loose strings? But you give a very good reason for this. And, again, this is a, a tale as old as time, a universal thing, which is certain people in power didn't want to be embarrassed, right? That's how we feel. Um, the The robberies were so bad. The train robberies had gotten to <laughs> they had gotten so bad that the trains were trying to reroute around the state of Missouri. Wow. They didn't want to go through Missouri at all because the robberies were so bad. Um, so that was hurting the business of the state. <laughs> you know, and all the all every community in the state was hurting because of that. Somebody, you know, the the governor wanted it to end. Uh, Jesse had proven in 1879 that he had tried to fake his death once. So I don't think he planned the death of Woodhite, but I think when it happened, they, they took advantage of it. Everybody fell in line said, yeah, that's him. And case was closed. That way, Jesse won. He got his, he, he faked his death. He got to live a peaceful life and the governor and everybody else were happy. Bob and Charlie Ford got their reward money. <laughs> although they ended up paying years later, uh, the whole country hated them. Charlie committed suicide, and years after that, Bob was killed by a man in Creed, Colorado, who was mad at him for killing Jesse. So. And it's just so, I mean, what are the odds when supposedly Jesse James was reportedly shot and killed that they they found his cousin's body? Um around the same time that he was supposedly killed, Jesse James. And it's just also, I mean, it just seems too, it, too much to be a coincidence. Yeah. Oh, and another thing I, I forgot to mention was when they buried Jesse a few days later, the alleged body of Jesse, they, they took him to the James farm where he lived and his, his mother lived. And during the funeral, Jesse's aunt walked up to the casket to view the body and said, that's not the Jesse I knew. And Jesse's mother was quoted as saying, she, she hushed her. She said, Shh, that's my rabbit's foot. Oh, and wow. I thought that was a very odd thing for, for a mother of, a, you know, if her son had just been killed, why would she call him her rabbit's foot? It, the whole thing just seemed, and you know, that's like a lucky charm. So I guess 
in our opinion, she was referring to the body in the casket as her lucky charm because it let her, her real son live. He got away. And am I reading this wrong or was I might be having a vision, but was Jesse related to uh, influential people? Could that have been a reason? Yeah, well, he was related. He was related to uh, Sheriff Courtney in the county south of him. It was related to Sheriff Timberlake in the county he lived in or grew up in. And he was also distantly related to Governor Crittenden, the governor of Missouri at the time. Yeah, and interesting to know another, there were so many Courtney's, they had um, Courtney's that were their neighbors. Um, when the purported Jesse James was shot and killed, they had two Courtney men who um, took his body to be buried. Um, you know, so it's like there were so many Courtney's that were connected, interrelated with the family. They, it's really easy to see how he could come up with the, the alias of Courtney. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. So, well, then what exactly happened to Jesse James? He didn't go to South America to be with the Sundance kid, did he? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he, he moved to Texas and, um, you know, took on the name James Lafayette Courtney um, and, you know, lived the rest of his life out in Texas. And uh, family has, a, you know, stories have been passed down that he was even um, a bigger, he was even a legend when he took on the assumed alias as well. He was an uh, just a, a powerful individual and it seems like whatever identity he took he just became larger than life but he lived a basically a very peaceful life and uh, yeah. when did yeah. when did your great-grandfather pass away how long did he live for he lived to until well he lived to the age of 97 and he passed uh, away in 1943 he, they i begged to diff i mean he had a more peaceful life when he assumed the alias, but um, his diary mentions um, even under the assumed name, he had problems like with um, not believing like people would drive um, in his journal. he would put how like people would come to his farm and they would say they were so-and-so um, and he never quite believed them. He always had a touch of paranoia, paranoia about it. Um, he would say, or so they say, um, you know, he had, and I mean, I can see why it's like he was still constantly looking over his shoulder, even under in his new life. So, I mean, it was more peaceful, but he still had, had to watch over his shoulder. How did yeah. you guys uh, make the connection between, you know, his, uh, post death, uh, life and, you know, J between James and his Courtney life. How did that, how did that connect? Okay. Well, while he was in Texas, he lived under the alias of James Lafayette Courtney. And, you know, we, we had heard the story passed down through the generations and we had several family photographs. Our mother started off with the photographs and she, she wanted, she thought, okay, if, if this truly was Jesse, he should look like the historic, you know, the, the photos, the historically accepted photos of Jesse. 
and we looked at him. We thought, well, that does look like him. Um, he had, and we even had family photos. His mother, Zerelda, for example, um, in the family photos, his mother matched Zerelda James, Jesse James's mother. They were both, they both looked alike, and they were both missing the same arm. Um, Mom took the photos to she. She wanted to, to get expert opinions on this, just so we would know and be more certain about our feelings. You know. You, you grow up hearing it, and you worry that maybe if you're looking at the photo, you might read something in it that isn't there. So she took it to the Texas Department of Public Safety, which is our version of the state police. Uh, down in Austin, the headquarters, they have a forensics lab, and they were kind enough to, to examine the photos, and they verified that Jesse, our, our great-great-grandfather, matched his photos matched the photos of the historically accepted photos of Jesse James and not just him, but his mother, they were wearing the same dress with the same exact print and they were missing the same arm. Um, and, and other family members also match. So we had that, but mom wanted, for some reason she had it in her mind to get three expert opinions. So she went to the Austin police department, their forensics lab, and they also were kind enough to examine the photos. They verified the same thing. The third group was a group out of uh, New Jersey called Visionics, who were later purchased by, I, be I believe it was Identix Corporation. But they were world leaders in facial recognition technology, and they sold, you know, they, their, their customers were military and uh, international airports and things like that. So they, they, they checked the photos, and they came to the same conclusion that, yes, our photos matched the historically accepted photos. And that, you know, mom was excited. Uh, she thought the people in Missouri at the James Foreman Museum would be just as excited as we were to know that Jesse didn't die, as history stated. And that was the last thing they wanted to hear. <laughs> they, Too many exhibits <laughs> have to change. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want to talk about it. They, they just, you know, they, they didn't want to believe it. They didn't even want to see the photos hung up on her. And they got real rude after that. And that's when mom decided to go public with it. You know, if they're not going to believe it, then, you know, let the public decide. And that's when she started. She wrote her first article. And then from there, it went. she wrote three books before she passed away. She also away. went um, to talking to her relatives, um, several of them who knew Grandpa Courtney, um, some of his grandkids. And interesting enough, she had some who wanted to deny it. They seemed ashamed of it, and they didn't want to ever come out and say, yes, he was Jesse James. Um, but then she had some who were like, yeah, that's Jesse James. He was Jesse James. And it's just, it was interesting because it was all from his grandkids, same, they all, you know, same um, line of descent. And we had, you know, several who wanted to say, they're like, yes, we've heard that's Jesse James. And others who are not Jesse James, you know, um, they didn't want. A lot of them seemed ashamed of it, so they wanted to keep it. They knew it was a family secret, but they wanted to keep it. They didn't want it publicized. They they were ashamed of it. I see. So your family knew him as Courtney. That's right. Yeah. Well, they, they knew he was Courtney, but they also knew he was Jesse James. Yeah, the story yeah. was that he was actually Jesse James. I see. Yeah. Yeah. 
Very interesting. And for the audience, Jesse James allegedly died in 1882. Your work reminded me a little bit about, uh, I know it may sound strange, but that old Quentin Tarantino movie, From Dusk Till Dawn. Oh, I love that movie. (laughs) I didn't know anything. I just walked into the theater and I'm like, oh, this looks like a gangster movie, like Pulp Fiction with weird characters shooting each other. Yes. And then something in the middle, I'm like, holy shit, where did the vampires come from? Yes. I think we, we're all young. We had that weird. Uh, but your book is kind of like that if you take out the cover because you're you're reading. Oh, my God, this is interesting. Jesse James, a legend, all the history, fascinating. And suddenly, whack. It's like you run into a mountain of occultism. Is that how did this happen <laughs> with you guys or you, Danny? Is, oh, the... Um yeah, the, uh, the mountain of occultism. Of the story. Yeah, the the treasure part of the story took me down a rabbit hole I never dreamed would happen. Um, you know, growing up in a small in small town Texas, you don't expect to come across Jewish mysticism and occult <laughs> Kabbalah, all the different forms of Kabbalah or anything related to that. And uh, you know, I I thought at most, you know, there were legends that Jesse had left treasure behind, and I tried to. I tried to track that down and trace it down, and it was it took years. And finally, I found out. Well, and it, I get, it's a. I'll try to make the story as short as possible. But um, trying to find the story, you know, we'd heard that he was connected to a group called the Knights of the Golden Circle, and they were a secret society who was um, well, they were a Confederate secret society during the Civil War, and their their alleged goal was during the Civil War was to halt Union troop movements. But after the Civil War, they, it, it is said, and this is true, you know, just, just speculation and legends and myths that has been passed down amongst a lot of treasure hunters, but it was uh, said that after the Civil War, their goal was to gain as much wealth as they could any way they could in order to fund a second Civil War. And, of course, that never happened. So. Uh, And people claim, you know, well, that didn't happen, so they buried it all. And here's the template. You know, they have this template, and the template came from one of the hoaxers, a guy who claimed to be Jesse James years ago named J. Frank Dalton, and he's been debunked. But he did know a lot about the treasures, so I'll give him that much credit. He wasn't Jesse, but he did know he was involved in some way. Uh, He had this template, and I thought, well, if the template is true and, and it works, uh, you know, I've got to try. That's the only thing I had to go on for a while. And um, I couldn't get it to work. I knew where Jesse lived. I knew where one of his treasures was allegedly buried. But I didn't, you know, you would need at least three treasures to figure out the scale and dimensions of this template. And I, uh, well, let's see, it was Wagner Carr. He was the former attorney general for the state of Texas. He was interested in Jesse James and his story. And he was also very interested in the treasures. Well, Wagner Carr had called my mother, our mother, several times over the years. They they got along. He, he eventually, my mother proved that to him that J. Frank Dalton was a hoaxer. You know, he wasn't Jesse and that our great-great-grandfather was really Jesse. And he believed it. And because he believed it, he had his driver pick my mother and I up and show us the locations of two large treasures that had been recovered. And uh, so I thought, wow, you know, they'd been recovered, but it was just interesting to to both of us to see where they were. 
and we we got to see where they were. One was a, an old cave that had been filled in, and uh, it, but anyway, to make a long story short, another man came out of the woodwork when he was ten years old, ten to twelve years old. He knew our great great grandfather when he was an older man. He was in his late eighties, early nineties, and uh, Jesse had hired him. This this man we met was named George Roaming. Jesse hired George and swore him to an oath, hired him to help him move 700 bars of gold about 20 miles from his home. And they, they, they hauled in a large, it was like, they called it a dray. It was like a freight wagon. They hauled it out, you know, 20 miles away. It took the whole day and, and they met several older, older gentlemen. And each of the older gentlemen had hired some, some younger boys about George's age. So they, uh, they buried the treasure in this location. George drew a map out and showed my mother and I where the treasure was buried. We asked him, well, what about the other boys? Could they have ever told anybody? He said he knew they didn't because they all died in World War II. And George was the only one of the group who made it through World War II, so he was the last guy to know the story. Um, and I hope I'm not dragging this on, but that was how I discovered. I had three, three known points around the central point and that the the scale of the template fit perfectly and from there i just started i you have one template i overlaid it and over the years i found out it was more than just one template there was a, a large medium and small the dimensions of them fit um the numbers the distances everything involved with it tied in perfectly with jewish mysticism and occult kabbalah Christian Kabbalah and all the different forms of, you know, Kabbalistic beliefs, which really piqued my interest. I didn't know anything about that until I got into this. And I wanted to know who put it there, why they put it there, and, you know, what the dimension symbolized in it. And just researching the readings of, or the writings of Albert Pike, uh, who was also a famous, well-known Freemason, and in tracking it back, I wanted to know who put it there. So it was almost like, uh, doing a ge the genealogy for an organization. They went through the Freemasons and Rosicrucians, back through the Founding Fathers, and it went all the way to Francis Bacon. I, I, when I found him, I was satisfied. I thought, okay, this is the guy who did it, including his writings, uh, The New Atlantis. It was like reading a blueprint for what America was meant to be. Um, but I, w I, I was satisfied for a few days about Francis Bacon, and found later that his mentor was John D., the who is also called the original 007. Uh, he was into alchemy, mysticism, and all that. I traced it back through John D. and all his connections. And this, this, it wasn't overnight. This took years. Uh, it went through different alchemists, uh, people, you know, mystic, people involved in alchemy and mysticism, through Jewish rabbis, all the way back to a rabbi who was known as Rashi who was the favored court guest of Hugh, the Count of Champagne, who was also one of the founders of the Knights Templar. And that's trying to put it in a quick nutshell. I hope I, I didn't confuse you with, with that. No, no, we definitely want to unpack some more of this because it's a, it's a fascinating labyrinth. And, and it, it makes truly it, is. it truly is. And I didn't mean to interrupt you. It's just I can't. It, it still blows me away when I'm telling the story. Uh, <laughs> like yeah it's like again you read it's like that movie suddenly your life just changed like well, i was not looking for this wisdom of the ages and hermetic magic and kabbalah 
exactly. <laughs> when I started well, on it's the road. also interesting because when um, uh, to tie into Danny's uh, journey with all of this, when um, my mom and us started researching heavier, um, each book that she came out with, um, we had literally like people in the shadows come forth with information for us as well. Um, and it, it led us into all kinds of little different rabbit holes. I mean, when she started this, she really just wanted to prove that he was Jesse James and that she thought people would be happy that Jesse James didn't die as history stated. Um, we never knew it would lead into all the other, uh, little rabbit holes that it led to. Yeah. <laughs> it's been intriguing. It's been a fascinating and intriguing journey from day one. Yeah. Well, in his diary that we have, uh, one of his diaries, it says he, he details a trip that they, he and some of his gang members made to Louisiana. And they, they went all through Louisiana. They, they hopped a steamboat, went south to Natchitoches, Louisiana, got off the steamboat, hit a road, went back north the opposite way they just traveled. Every way around along the route, there is historical evidence in newspapers of, of stage robberies. Placing His diary places them in the same area the stages and the steamboat were robbed. But they stayed at the house of a man named Gervais Fontenot. And this really blew me away. Gervais Fontenot, I thought, okay, this, that's, it's an interesting name. It's a, you know, a French name, and, and that's common in Louisiana, but it just, for some reason, anybody he connected with always liked trying to do their genealogy to see who they were tied or connected to. Um, I found out that Gervais Fontenot was a retired U.S. Marshal, and I thought that's strange that Jesse would stay at the home uh -huh. of a retired U.S. Marshal. And, but I, I dug further and found that Gervais Fontenot was the nephew of the famous pirate Jean Lafitte. And that just blew my mind. I mean, I, what do you say when you, I'm, I'm researching Jesse James and then come across, find out that he stayed the night at the house of Jean Lafitte's nephews. Wow. I mean, that, that just really blew me away. And Jean Lafitte also had connections. He, I believe he was a Freemason also, um, and this is a historical record. It's it's a well known fact. Jean Lafitte helped the you know helped the U.S. defeat the British in the Battle of New Orleans. But before the battle started, Jean Lafitte was said to have had Masonic communications with Andrew Jackson, who was later the president of the U.S. And I thought that that's really interesting because that also ties in with the treasure stories, the Freemasons, and all their involvement with the buried treasures. And it just, everything, it's like a giant spider's web of overlapping webs that all interconnect. And it just amazes me. Yeah, it's incredible. And uh, do we have any evidence that Jesse James might have been a Freemason? Yes, he was a, under, under the alias James Lafayette Courtney, he was a Freemason. And he was a member of the lodge in the county he lived in, in Falls County, Texas. It was a Carolina Lodge, number 33, I believe. Well, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Can't get any better than that. Oh, I was just, I was agreeing. It, it, that is amazing to me. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, that's awesome. Well, I think we are 
at the end of this very fascinating and engaging interview. I guess, first of all, where can the audience find out more about your work? You can find out about us at, well, we've got two websites. One is one that I, that was my mother's, and I've kept it going. It's jessewjames.com. And then the other website that I have is authordanduke.com. And you can read more about us on, I'm, we're both on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you can search for Teresa Duke or Daniel Duke and uh, on Twitter or Facebook and find us. I've got a page, Dan Duke author on Facebook and also our publisher, um, innertraditions.com. And the books are available. The books are available anywhere books are sold globally. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, and there's a lot of other bookstores. Wonderful. Well, audience, I highly recommend you get both books and you read them because uh, it's quite a journey. And uh, and for the audience, uh, Daniel, you are going to put out a third book. Yes, uh, I'm working on on my third book now, and it if when it comes out, it should be in 2021 sometime. Although I don't have a date yet. Are we going to find out Jesse was an alien? <laughs> Is that the next revelation? Oh, that was funny. <laughs> that was good. Well, I'll get you on the History Channel. Finally, you'll, you'll have exposure like you've never had before. And yeah. the way 2020 is going, you yeah, never know. anything. Yeah, you wouldn't even be surprised. Anything is possible. <laughs> oh, that Outlaw good. theorists say yes. <laughs> well, awesome. Either oh, way. Thank you. I needed a laugh today. That was, I loved it. <laughs> well, either way, we definitely want to have you back for this third book because uh, I'm sure we want to find out what's going on. And we won't be surprised. And it'll be great. But uh, first of all, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company and being the great producer that you are. Oh, well, you're very welcome. And it was fascinating journey, gosh, from Jesse James to the skies. Thanks. Thank yes, you. Thank you. Uh, Teresa, thank you very much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed it. Oh, I, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed this. And thank you for having us on your show. Oh, the honor is all ours. And Daniel, thank you very much for coming on AM Byte. Really appreciate it. Thanks. It's been an honor for me, too. I'm greatly honored, and, and I appreciate it. I had a great time. Oh, Us yeah. Too. And there you have it, my beloved True Seekers. The first part of our interview with Teresa and Daniel Duke. You know, I wish I had Jesse's gnosis. You are a sad, strange little man. Eh, better stick to interviewing. In our second part, we'll really ramp up the Freemason background of Jesse, as well as connect his treasures to the Rosicrucians, Knights Templar, Kabbalists, and other esoteric groups. This will include revealing several secret maps and treasures here in North America. And you know we'll talk about the esoteric aspects of the Founding Fathers. We'll discuss the DNA research on Jesse James that the siblings conducted, as well as other investigations on his life and alleged death. Teresa and Daniel will share why the constellation Lyra is so essential to secret brotherhoods that brought forbidden treasures to America, and much more. So become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon for the full Templar treasure. 
it really helps grow this red pill cafeteria. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You won't find this Gnostic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or even meat space. Membership includes full access to the archives with more than 14 years of high-quality interviews. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel, where past guests like Adrian Smith, Scott Smith, Edward Pandemonium, Joanna Cuyava, Tim Freak, and Chris Bennett hang out there. Part of some mind-expanding continual conversations. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. I also have an Amazon wish list as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. The show has grown to the point advertisers want to appear, but they're rejected as I only work for you and only you. And you can do so many wonders. I just know it. I just know it and are so full of potential and the ability to find your own Templar treasure and break down the Empire's hologram. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.